He asked God to give him an immediate sign that will assure him that this miracle will really happen in the next three days. Now, God doesn't owe him a sign. Being healed is enough of a sign, right? And he's only got to wait 72 hours. But he's asking God for something right away that will confirm to him that he really is going to be healed. And God mercifully grants the sign. In fact, it's even a kind of multiple choice thing that God gives him, where God gives him the option. Okay, Hezekiah, what do you want to happen? Do you want, do you want the sun? This, remember, his dad Ahaz had built a sundial where there would be some tall object and the sun's shadow would be traced to keep track with time. So they ask him if he wants the shadow of the sundial to go forward 10 degrees, and that's probably the idea of abruptly going forward 10 degrees, like it's going to jump forward 10 degrees, or does he want the sundial to move backwards 10 degrees? And Hezekiah says, well, it seems harder for it to go backwards. I mean, it naturally moves forward. I want it to go backward 10 degrees. And God grants the request. Now, we're not told how that happens. I don't know if this is some universe-wide cosmological phenomenon where God moves planetary alignments or changes earth rotation, or if this is some local miracle where God, God changes how the light is refracting in this area to the sun shadow. However God does it, it's clear to Hezekiah God has answered the request. And the shadow on the sundial moves back 10 degrees, which, which assures him that God is indeed going to keep his promise and he's going to get 15 years added to his life. Now, quick parentheses. Um, interestingly enough, back in 2015, um, archaeologists working around the Temple Mount in Jerusalem found a, a, a seal from the reign of King Hezekiah. Okay, so just like our president has a seal, each one of Israel's kings would have his own unique seal. And that's what they would use, you know, with, with uh, documents. They would put either clay or uh, soft clay or, or wax, and then they would stamp the seal on it. Well, they found one of the hardened seals that had Hezekiah's name on it. So it's 2,700 years old. It was a huge discovery when they found it. So, so what's on Hezekiah's seal? One of the things on it is, in fact, one of the prominent things on it is a, a winged sun is on the seal. Now, we don't know why he put it there, but it makes you wonder, did Hezekiah put this on his seal as this reminder of what God had done that he had seen the sun, in essence, fly back 10 degrees. So it, it's an amazing miracle that God does for him. He's going to extend his life. He's going to deliver him from the hand of, an, of Assyria. He hears his prayers. He sees his tears. Wonderful story. But it's also a story that raises some pretty significant questions, doesn't it? Because you, you have to ask, so what exactly is happening here? Is, is God changing his plan? Because Isaiah says he's going to die, and then Isaiah says that his life's going to be extended. So, so had God mapped out a plan for Hezekiah, and then in response to the plan, he sort of changed it up, etch a sketch, shook the etch a sketch, and then sketched out a new plan for Hezekiah? Because if, that, if that's happening, I mean, obviously, if God changed this with Hezekiah, it's the butterfly effect. This changes a billion different things. So... So is that what? And there's other stories like this in the Bible that raise similar questions. So think of, think of Jonah going to Nineveh. And what's the pronouncement in Nineveh? It's clear and straightforward. In 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. That's the pronouncement. 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. But Nineveh repents, and 40 days later, they're not overthrown. 
So how do you understand that? Did God change his mind or change his plan there? Well, we could spend a couple weeks on that, but let me give you just one helpful rule of thumb as you're reading scripture. Um, as, you're, as you're studying the Bible and trying to connect doctrinal issues in the Bible, and when you come across stories, narratives like this that are tracing people's lives and God's workings with people, you don't use the narratives of the Bible to try to interpret the declaratives of the Bible. Declaratives are, there are statements of fact, clear doctrinal statements in the Bible. So what I'm saying is you don't use the stories to make sense of the declaratives, you actually work in the opposite direction. You use the declaratives, the clear statements in the Bible, to make sense of the stories in the Bible. So, so what are some of the declaratives, some of the statements of fact in the Bible about God? Well, here's, here's one important one to this discussion. God in Malachi chapter 3 verse 6 says, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. This is called the immutability of God. Immutability means the unchangeableness of God. It means that God, in his essence, in his nature, in his attributes, in his decrees, in his purposes, does not change. And this is one of the things that sets God apart from everything in his creation, right? Because our lives as creatures is defined by change. Our moods change. Over time, our personalities change. I don't know if you've noticed, our bodies change. Our clothes change. Our circumstances change. Our likes change. Everything changes. We're, we're in a world, a created universe, where nothing is stable, nothing is fixed. And in the midst of all of that, God is the one fixed constant. He does not change. God's person, his purposes, his character is fixed. God, God never resorts to plan B. That's not who God is. And you can even add to that. It's not just that God does not change. It's that God in his nature cannot change. Listen to the way Arthur Pink described it. Pink wrote, God cannot change for the better, for he's already perfect. And being perfect, he cannot change for the worse. Altogether unaffected by anything outside of himself. Improvement or deterioration is impossible. He is perpetually the same. Do you, do you get the point that Pink is making? Every change that happens in our lives is either for the better or for the worse. Well, God is perfect, so he can't change for the better, and if he changed for the worse, he'd cease to be perfect. So the perfection of God demands the immutability of God. You follow me on that? L listen to, I'll just give you verses that connect some of these dots. Psalm 102, starting in verse 25. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. 
Yes, they'll all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You'll change them and they'll be changed. But you are the same and your years will have no end. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? James 1, 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Psalm 33, 11. The counsel of the Lord, counsel, this is the idea of God's will, his decrees. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. One more, Isaiah 46. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all of my pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I've purposed it, I will also do it. These are the sorts of doctrines that lie underneath all of those passages that refer to God as our rock. Right, that, that we're in this world of constantly shifting sand, and in the middle of that, God is our Gibraltar. He is the solid rock that is immovable and unchangeable. Or even think of how God defined himself to Moses. Remember when, when Moses says, Lord, who do I tell them sent me? What's your name? And God says, I am that I am. He's not becoming, he is. He's not, he's not morphing into something better. He's not figuring things out. He is. He, he is unchangeable. Okay, so in light of that, how do we make sense of stories like Hezekiah or I just mentioned Nineveh or I mentioned earlier Exodus 32 where they make the golden calf and God says, I'm going to destroy the people and Moses repents and then God doesn't destroy the people. So how do you make sense of all of those different stories? Um, here's one of the things to note. All of those narratives where it seems like something's changing, one of the things you'll note is in each one of those stories, what's actually changing are the people. So, so God sends Jonah to Nineveh to say, repent, 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. And what happens to the people of Nineveh? They repent before God. They change. And in their repentance, they move from, from one unchanging attribute of God to another unchanging attribute of God. One attribute is God is unchangingly uh, wrathful toward rebellion. They move from that to another attribute. God is unchangingly merciful toward repentance. And you see that in all of these stories. So it's narratives where it's describing God's interaction with people. So it's God and man. And, and from the people's perspective, it seems like God is changing, but it's the people God is changing. And all of this is part of God's sovereign plan. God is using warnings of judgment and God is using for Hezekiah warnings of death to bring about change. And the change that the warnings bring about 
is part of his plan. Okay, so God works through these warnings to change the person, and the person changing moves them from one attribute of God to another attribute, which is all part of the God who says, I declare the end from the beginning, and my purposes don't change. Okay, so use the, use the declaratives in the Bible to shine light on the narratives, not the other way around. And there's a lot more that could be said there, and we don't have time for it. But, but God is, the big picture here is, God uses this warning to bring Hezekiah to this point of abject humility and dependence on God. God hears his prayer. God shows him mercy. God extends his life for, for 15 years. Okay. Now let me give a quick spoiler on the, the second part of chapter 20. So how do you think Hezekiah is going to respond to this? Maybe I should ask it this way. Do we always respond in a good way to God's blessings? No. Well, Hezekiah is not either. Listen to how 2 Chronicles describes his reaction to God giving him 15 more years of life. In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death, and he prayed to the Lord, and he spoke to him and gave him a sign, but Hezekiah did not repay according to the favor shown him, for his heart was lifted up. Therefore, wrath was looming over him and over Judah and Jerusalem. How does Hezekiah respond to this wonderful blessing? God answers his prayer. God extends his life by 15 years. What's his response? His response is pride. You can, imi you can imagine Hezekiah thinking, maybe God does really need me. Maybe he can't, maybe he can't get by without me on the throne of Judah. This is just one of the marks of how, um, how fallen our hearts are, is we, we even have the ability to take God's blessings and to turn them into sources of self-promotion. And that's what Hezekiah does. So here's what happens next in the story. Picking up in verse 12. Uh, 2 Kings 20, verses 12 and 13. At that time, Baradoc Baladon, the son of Baladon, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick, and Hezekiah was attentive to them and showed them all the house of his treasures, the silver and gold, the spices and precious ointment, and all his armory, all that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. You see what's happening now? So remember, we've talked before about, about under Assyrian dominance. The nation that Assyria had the hardest time keeping under control was Babylon. Babylon was a thorn in their side. In fact, about 75 years or so after this, Babylon rebels and Assyria isn't able to bring them back under control. And the Babylonian dynasty begins growing right? So Babylon is a problem. And Babylon sends an, an envoy down to Hezekiah. They, they've heard uh, that he's better, that he's getting well, but this isn't just a, a, a checkup visit. They're not sending a, a balloon bouquet, get well soon to Hezekiah. There's an agenda behind this. Did you notice how it says that they sent, they sent letters to him? And there's something they're wanting to communicate in this visit. And what, what seems to be happening is Babylon, the king of Babylon, sends this envoy. And what he's looking for is he's looking for Hezekiah and Judah 
to join in the Babylonian rebellion, to join in this alliance with Babylon against Assyria. Okay, and I think that's proven by how Hezekiah responds. So there's, now remember, God has already said to Hezekiah, he's already promised Hezekiah that he's not going to let Syria win, right? He's already promised that Assyria will not be able to conquer Jerusalem. On top of that, over and over in the Old Testament, God has warned his people not to put their trust in any of these foreign nations. He has warned them not to put their trust in any of these pagan empires. But you can see how tempting it was here for Hezekiah uh, to kind of hedge his bets. I mean, sure, God had promised that he would deliver them, but it'd be awfully helpful to have Babylon on their side too. And, and you can also imagine how this would have stroked what seems like an already swelling ego. Hezekiah's thinking, the king way up in Babylon knows who I am. And the king way up in Babylon, this is like, this is like when you were a kid and you're picking teams for, for basketball or kickball and you get picked on a team and you, all of a sudden your head swells a little bit if you're picked first. That's what's happening. Hezekiah's thinking, he wants me on his team. And so what does he do in response? Well, he's got to show what he brings to the table. He wants to prove that he is a valuable ally to bring into this alliance. And so what does he do? He invites them in and he shows them everything he has. He gives them the first class tour. He shows them the royal treasury. He shows them the national armory so that they see that Judah is prepared for war. So he is showing them everything that he has. And just a reminder of what a pernicious sin pride is. Because what happens is as, as I become more and more impressed with myself, what I want is other people to be as impressed with me as I am with me. I want them to become aware of how much I've accomplished. I want them to become aware of how successful I am. And just a quick warning, we can be really good at hiding this under the auspices of thanking the Lord, right? Be careful with this in your life. I'm not saying this happens all the time, but it's really easy to, to say, well, look how the Lord's blessed us. When what I'm really thinking in my heart is, look what I've accomplished. You see what I have? You see how successful I am? You see how accomplished I am? You see how smart I am? This is back to that um, John Stott quote from weeks ago where, where Stott so well put it that at every stage of our spiritual development, pride is our greatest enemy and humility is our greatest friend. So here Hezekiah is, and once again, pride has become a huge problem. So what's the response to this? Pick up in verse 14. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? So Hezekiah said, They came from a far country, from Babylon. And Isaiah said, What have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, They've seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. And then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs 
in the palace of the king of Babylon. So, so God knows what's going on in Hezekiah's heart. And God sends Isaiah to Hezekiah to say, who were those men who were here? Well, they're officials from Babylon. What did you show them? And Hezekiah basically says, I showed them everything. And God's response is, everything that you showed them, they're going to get one day. So he's, he's basically given the foxes a tour of the hen house. And everything they laid their eyes on is going to be theirs. And this is what ends up happening, right? Babylon ends up coming in and taking everything. The city of Jerusalem is destroyed. The walls are completely torn down. The people are hauled off into exile. And God even adds that some of, some of Hezekiah's sons are going to be taken back to Babylon and they're going to be turned into eunuchs. So what would happen in this day is foreign empires would often take royalty, uh, the upper class from the nations they conquered, and they would use them as officials in the royal court because they already knew how the royal court functioned. But the king's concern was he wanted to make sure that none of these foreigners he brought into the royal court started fooling around with the royal harem. So there was one sure way to make sure they didn't start fooling around with the royal harem, and that is you just castrate them all. You turn them all into eunuchs. And Hezekiah is told that his sons are going to be taken away and they're going to be turned into eunuchs in the Babylonian court. Okay, this is, this is a hard word of judgment. So how does he respond? Verse 19. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord which you've spoken is good. For he said, this is what he's thinking, will there not be peace and truth at least in my days? Now I think, to me, his response here is the most staggering thing in the whole story of Hezekiah. Now remember back, just a few verses earlier, when he gets the message from God that he's going to die suddenly, how does he respond to that message? He pleads with God. He is broken and he begs God to spare his life. But now he gets the message that the kingdom is going to fall, everything's going to be destroyed, his sons are going to be turned into eunuchs, and his message is, it's a good word. Now, if that's all that was there, you could, you could take that as positive, that maybe, maybe it's a mark of fake, maybe he's submitting to God's judgment. But it's like the last phrase is telling us what lies behind him saying it's a good word. Here's the quiet part. For he said... Will there not be peace and truth at least in my days? What's he saying? At least I'm not going to have to deal with it. That, that's astounding to think about. He's just found out his nation is going to fall and his children are going to suffer. And his response is, well, at least it's not going to happen in my day. Well, what about the kingdom? What about his legacy? What about the next generation? And it's a quick, quick picture that... Maybe while Hezekiah was a, a good king, he certainly doesn't seem like a very good father, does he? What kind of parent could have that reaction? And I think that ends up being played out because Hezekiah's son is a king named Manasseh who is at least in the top three of the worst kings that Judah will ever have. We'll see this next time we're together. Manasseh is going to come to the throne and all of the good reforms that Hezekiah brought about, Manasseh will undo everything good that his father did within a single generation. 
So it's all going to come crashing back down. So here's how Hezekiah's story ends. Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah, all his might and how he made a pool and a tunnel and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Hezekiah rested with his fathers, and then Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. So there's good things he did. It mentions this important construction project. He, he has a tunnel that goes from a spring outside of Jerusalem, almost 400 feet underground, into the city. So they have water. So when they do come under siege, they can survive. People still today uh, in Jerusalem walk through Hezekiah's tunnel that he constructed. It was important, an important work. But with all that said, his story sadly ends with a, a pretty severe thud, doesn't it? And it leaves you thinking, man, if Hezekiah, a king like David, if he couldn't bring reform, not just to the nation, if he couldn't even bring real reform to his own life, what hope do we have? What king can do it if Hezekiah can't do it? And that's why I've mentioned a hundred times that all of these stories of these kings in the Old Testament are meant to leave us longing for a better king. There, there is a king, not Hezekiah and not David, but there is a king who, who never falls into pride. And there is a king who, who doesn't just sit on the, on the throne for 15 more years, but who sits on the throne forever. So we have a king we can trust in better than, than any potentate or better than any president or better than Hezekiah could have ever dreamed of being, a king who really does sacrifice for his people, right? We're not trusting in Hezekiah. We're trusting in Jesus. And all of these stories leave us longing for him because even the best kings fall short. So we'll stop there tonight. With all the good things he did, it, it leaves you with... Um, I don't know, uh, it kind of deflates you at the end of his life, doesn't it? Any questions with Hezekiah? All right, well, let's pray and we'll dismiss.